I just find that myopia, you find it everywhere. You, you can go to a romance conference and people are like, literature sucks. Those people are awful. And you go to a literary festival and they're like, romance, who would read romance? Or people would do it to comic books or whatever. And my advice is to stay really curious and be open to all of it. Read all of it and listen to everyone you meet because I just think that lack of curiosity is the death of good art. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. I'm Rachel Johns, and I'm here as a guest host on Rightful. And today I am delighted to be interviewing Dr. Amy T. Matthews. I'm going to ask you what the T is. I don't know if you're going to give it away, but I've worked for years. What is the- <laughs> It's Therese. It's Therese. Yeah, because they know had a pen name that was Tess for a while. Of course. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Amy Therese Matthews. See, that sounds really even more important. <laughs> We'll talk about why she is the doctor, but her latest novel is Someone Else's Bucket List, which I think Amy, for those who are watching, has a there. That's the Australian cover. Yeah, I love the Australian cover. I think they did such a good job. So if you're listening to this in the US, you may have already read Someone Else's Bucket List or listened to it and you'll have a different cover. So I have read it and it's described as a tear-jerking, heartwarming story of sisterly love. But we'll just go a little bit of a spiel for those of you who don't know who Amy is. Amy's first novel is End of the Night Girl, which won the Adelaide Festival Unpublished Manuscript Award and was long listed for the Australian Vogel Literary Award. That's amazing. I don't think I knew about that. Yeah, before. yeah. That was exciting when that happened. I was quite young. That was before I cleaned it up and it got published. Because <laughs> you have to be under 35 to yeah. that one, don't you? I probably just scraped in, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> It was also, that level was also shortlisted for the Nita B. Kibble Dobby Award. That's a bit of a mouthful. And the Colin Roderick Award. Wow. And Amy currently is a senior lecturer in creative writing at. I actually just got promoted. I haven't updated all my things yet because it only kicked in two weeks ago. I'm associate professor now. Associate professor. Yeah. That sounds super important. <laughs> associate professor at Flinders University and a former chair and long serving board member of Writers SA, which is a fabulous organization here in. South Australia and a writer yeah. or become a writer. Um, and you're also the associate member of the JM Hotsey Centre for Creative Practice. Yeah, yeah. And a member of Romance Writers of Australia, as you are. <laughs> I should put that on the website. <laughs> and you've got three. You've got four if you count my work on. But anyway, the reason Amy has four websites is because as well as being published as Amy T. Matthews, she's also, as we've said, a professor and you've got your academic publications, the website of them. And if that's not enough, she also writes under the names Amy Barry and Tesla Sue. Yeah. I've got the advanced reader copy coming out in Australia in, I think this one's April. So Amy Barry, the first book is Kit with Bride Takes a Wife. So funny. Come up. It's awesome. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about that too. There's so much to talk about with Amy. I don't know if this is probably going to be a very long talk. I hope you've got a cup of tea or you're going for a long walk or a long drive and you're ready to listen to us yak on about writing. So welcome. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> I to talk to you because you are a wealth of knowledge about writing, publishing, the romance as a genre. There's so many things. I so said we could probably have done three or four podcasts about different things. Yeah. But anyway, I will mention later on, and we'll talk about that, Amy also runs a podcast, A Season Without This Year. Is that right? Yeah. So we, we'll have another season starting off around May, and we're doing little footnotes here and there as well. So we've got some interviews coming out soon. It's called Love on Campus, and it's about romance and, yeah, romance books. It's so much fun to talk romance. It's the best. I could talk romance as you could, like, forever. Yeah. So we'll definitely maybe talk a little bit of that if we have time. But I strongly recommend if we don't have time that you also, as well as listening to write women, you do check out Romance on Campus. But anyway, first, let's get stuck in. Even though I've known you for quite a while, I don't think I actually know, you know, how you got into writing, why you started. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your journey? Did you always want to be an author? Um, I don't think it ever, I ever thought it was possible, actually, when I was young. I've always written and I've always loved reading. And part of the reason I have so many names and so many genres is, I do it all at once and probably a friend of mine says your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness and it's good for character too to think greatest strength, greatest weakness. Mm-hmm. But probably I am interested in too many things at once and find it hard to just stay in one lane. I always read everything and I think I always wrote everything and wanted to give everything a go. So I've always written, but I don't think it ever crossed my mind I could ever legitimately be an author. Yeah. Yeah. So then, and I didn't know any. It didn't seem, and I wasn't like tapped into any writers' communities or anything. So it was around my mid-20s. I just had this feeling like I'd done a couple of degrees. I, was, I used to be a wedding planner. I planned, oh, like, wow. A, yeah. <laughs> no, so I spent weekends running all these weddings and events. <laughs> I think the romance. Yeah. And I was just feeling really unfulfilled. And I just remember my dad saying to me, you only get to do it once. Really think about what you want to do and go for it. And I remember thinking, I love writing. So I went back to uni. I went to the University of Adelaide and did honours in creative writing. And it was funny because I turned up just to talk to them about doing English because I was like, I really liked English. Maybe I could go back and do honours. And they said to me, oh, we've just started a postgraduate program in creative writing. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know you could do that. I was like, well, that seems crazy that you could just go and study writing because that would be all I want to do. Too much fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did. I went and did that for a year and really loved it and then went into the PhD. But and we can talk about this because I know you have experiences too. The institution I was in, and I'm still a part of my side as I do doing literary writing as well, but it was very literary focused. What year were you doing yours? Autumn's was 2002. Okay, so I was 99. So. Yeah, same era. And so I think I worked out the only way to get the grades was to write in this way. But I did curate my writing. Meanwhile, on the side, I've always like, loved romance, always. Like I was such a binger of historical romance all through my youth. So like I got every Joanna Lindsay book when it came out every six months and I loved like all the historical romance. Did that come from anywhere? Like, how did you get into that? It was actually my friend Kate, which leads us into this because this book was inspired by my friend who passed away. But when we were in year, I think it was like, I always read Sweet Valley High and all yep. that stuff. But in year nine, she bought her mum's old bodice strippers, like 
<laughs> they were really old 70s ones, like Kathleen Woodhouse and all those. And she'd bring them and sneak them in and we'd all swap them around and just loved them. And so we all, my whole friendship group, we just devoured these romances on the side. <laughs> and yeah, I just remember when I went to Target, my mum would never, she just loved that we read. So I could buy anything as long as I was reading. So if we went, if I went to Target with her, I'd come home with all these Joanna Lindsay books. So yeah, I feel like the early part of my career, I think it took me a long time to come out of the closet with what I really loved writing because there was... Even if it's not explicit, there's a kind of embedded snobbery so in true. universities yeah. for poetry and literary fiction. And let's face it, though, it's not even just universities. So no, like, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Even I have people, I'm not going to name them publicly, but people in my life who they'll read a book and they'll say, oh, but it's still just a romance, isn't it? Yeah. You try and write one. Wait, <laughs> Jack. They're the same people often who will be reading Jane Austen every year. Like yeah. they'll go back and read their whole collection of Jane Austen. That's just a romance, too. Yeah. Summon Jane Austen from the dead. But, yeah, that's right. And she was writing now. She'd be writing rom-coms, like the other Bridget Jones. She would. That's exactly what she'd be writing. Yeah, so I think what happened was I did my PhD and that was End of the Night Girl and there was a monograph called Navigating the Kingdom of Night. I loved writing that and I enjoyed it. It was very dark, really heavy, really literary, very clever. And I finished it up and I'd had a child by then. I think I was pregnant with my next and I just didn't want to sit in a really serious, dark place yep. all the time. So I was like, you know what? I always loved romance. I'm going to write a romance. And that's when the name Tesla Sue, L-E-S-U-N, because they were fun. So I wrote this series that was published by Berkeley in the US called the Frontings of the Heart series. They did really well. It was in like Walmart and all those places back when mass market paperbacks were still really selling. <laughs> so... They were just great fun. They were like a romp. I always say it's like romance in the stone kind of style, like classical, funny romances. And I just loved it. But then I found when you're at a university, there's still a lot of snobbery about it. So when you want to advance your career, there's a lot of, oh, they're just romances. But I was lucky in that the publishers were quite prestigious. Yeah. So although they could go, oh, they were just romance, they'd then see Penguin Random House. And be like, oh, I don't, that's like the top literary publisher in the world. Must be okay. So I think that was lucky. And then, yeah, I, with Bucket List, wanted to get back to what would I write under my name? It's not as dark as End of the Night Girl and it's not as serious, but it's getting back more towards, I don't know, book club fiction, they call it. So it's like women's fiction, not pure romance, but it's, got heavy romantic elements. That's had strong romantic elements. Like some women's fiction are more romantic than others. Yeah. And it's yeah. hard sometimes to put that in a hole because, yeah, I think, yeah, that book club fiction has got issues. And although it is a heart-wrenching book and it's a sad story in many ways, there's a lot of kind of humorous moments. Yeah. And so my agent called it rom sad. So it's like a... It's like a rom-com where you're also going to have a couple of big ugly cries at some point. So that whole... Putting something in a box sometimes is not necessarily easy, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I understand on a marketing point of view, but when you're coming at it as a writer, that's hard. Yeah, you get to a point where it's you have the books that you're writing to market and then you have the books of your heart that yeah. you, they just have to be. I think you've just written that with the other Bridget. Yeah, I guess so. That was, yeah, that's just like an idea that sort of came and I had to write it and it wasn't necessarily in, in exactly the box that I'd already gone. Back to your wonderful book. <laughs> Talks about that that yeah 
that have decided to write now. Give us a spiel. I probably should give a, a little bit of a spiel to those people who haven't yet read it. So I'll tell you the origin story first because that makes sense of it. My really good friend Kate, who gave me the romance books when I was like 14, in 2017 she passed away really suddenly and I hadn't seen her for ages. And you know how you just assume you see someone again. That's yeah. fine. That's someone. I'll see you one day. We've got kids. Yeah, we were young. Like I never thought there was a time limit. Yeah. And then, yeah, I just got a phone call one day that she passed away. So exactly like in Bucket List, she'd gone in with pneumonia to a hospital and the doctor said to her, oh, I'm just going to need the name of your oncologist because we can't treat the pneumonia until we talk about your leukemia. And she was like, my what? Oh, my gosh. And then, yeah, and then she didn't ever leave the hospital again. And then the other bit that inspired it was at her funeral, and I just want to say, I'm only talking about her because I've talked to her family about, is it okay to tell these stories? And they're very keen for everyone to know about Kate. And also, if you'd like to donate to the Leukemia Foundation, it would be much appreciated. Is there anything that's in the back of the book or anything? Yeah, it's going to be on my socials. And and yeah, the, it, it, you can find it. It'll be on my website. So if you've updated my website, it'll be a button to donate. But when I went to her funeral, she had young children and she's very close to her sister who is only 14 months younger than her. And she said to them that she wasn't afraid of dying, but she was really worried about how they were all going to cope after she went. So she presents for like their first birthdays and Christmas after she passed so that they would have a gift from her when it came. And then she had this will make us all cry. But she also at her funeral, she had really little kids and the chapel was like full of helium balloons and there was like a big, I think it was a unicorn for her daughter and a superhero for her son all around the coffin so that they wouldn't remember as like a traumatic. Oh, wow, that's lovely. And that just summed her up as a person. And I just spent years thinking, oh, wow. But it wasn't how I imagined facing death. Like I thought it would be terrifying and you'd be, but it was this kind of moment of real love for her of like all she was thinking about was how can I help them get through the grief to the other side. And so that was the inspiration for the book. So the book is about, two sisters and Brie is an influencer and she does turn up to a hospital and is diagnosed with leukemia and the book starts and ends with her and her kind of intention to how she loves her family and so what she does is she bequeaths her unfinished bucket list and her one million followers on Instagram to her younger sister who's really shy and lost and says I've organized a deal for my medical debt to be paid off if you finish this on my Instagram account. And the whole kind of circus, that's the romantic comedy bit. And so most of the book is the rom-com of Jodie finishing the list and getting through grief and finding the meaning of things and falling in love and her family kind of turning their attention from grieving for Brie to Jodie and life and what might come next. So that's the kind of story of the book. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. As I said, so it may sound like it's sad story and there's obviously a lot of, of talk of grief and you feel very strongly the fact you can feel the family's emotion I think especially in that Thanksgiving scene oh, yeah uh, that beginning's pretty hard I remember when you were editing it it's like how much can a reader take before they they're like closing the book well hang on there if anyone's listening it's <laughs> a good payoff and you need that I guess we need it start we need to show why Adam. I feel like you really needed to know Brie if you didn't have the opening chapter with, in her point of view and you just went to Jodie in the Greece, Yeah, I agree. 
you lose the weight of what a person meant. Mm. They're erased from the book, whereas this way you are coming in and you love her as much as they love her, I hope. And then it, yeah. And then you come back to her at the end. It's got a book in it. I love how we get her little messages throughout. Okay. We won't give too much away. So uh, yeah, I was going to ask for the inspiration, but we've talked about that. And that is, I'm very sorry to hear about your friend, but it's beautiful that you have written this a tribute. And I was really touched. I want to shout out to her sister and her mother who were both just, and they said that she would have been thrilled to be the inspiration. Like, so that I'm really touched that the family have embraced as an outcome from Kate's life as well. Yeah. And so obviously this is the book of your heart because yeah. of <laughs> all of that. My mother, actually, I wrote this during COVID lockdown, which was hard, but then my mother got cancer during it. So we were also going through all the rounds of cancer treatments while I was writing it, which, so I think that's one reason the emotion is in the book is because I was going through it all over and over. I'm now okay. Yeah, she is. Yeah, she came through. She should be dedicated to this. Thank you. Yeah, I've said thank you to her. She's had a few books. She's got the next one. There's another book after this called Best First and Last, which will be out in December. And that one is dedicated to my mum and is about mothers and daughters. So she gets the book. Fair enough. I'm sure she'll have to do that. The writing process, I'm always fascinated to hear. And I've obviously, this is a writing podcast. So you've written different types of books. And I guess, yeah. like me, you've written. Like pure, I was about to say straight romance, but I don't mean straight. I, think, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, pure romance. Pure romance. Yeah. And then you've written, yeah, book club fiction with romantic elements. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. So I'd love to, to know a couple of things. Firstly, what is your process like? Are you, in the way we talk about, mostly a plotter, a bit more of a pantser? And has that changed or does it change from book to book? I think it's changed a lot, actually, now that I write for contract on contract mostly. Process is really messy. I'm like, I know from the outside, it looks like when everyone's looking at you from the outside, it always looks easy and polished. And oh, and she just sits down and writes a book in three or four months and it's done. And that must be easy for her. And if you do, you are on tight deadlines where maybe you're churning out quite a lot of words a day or a week or a month. Everyone's, ah, I don't know how you do that. And that must be some magic process. But actually, it's just incredibly messy, my life. I'm always doing multiple things at once. I work really long days and I don't multitask that well. For someone who has to multitask all the time. Not the same, I think. <laughs> I get quite harried and stressed. I have a lot of links on the go at all times. I am probably a mental one, but I haven't written okay. it down. We'll get back to that. Okay. Yeah. And it does probably change. So with writing, I what I try and do is have blocks of time. That's why I think I'm more of a binger than a steady. You have friends who write who will get apps or do whatever and they'll post their little, his, yeah. like the bar that gets bigger. Mine would just make me cry because it would be nothing for a really long time and then a lot and then nothing for a very long time. So whether it works, you know. That, yeah. So the last few years I've tried to write over summer because I teach a lot during the year. So it'll be from like November till March will be my writing time. And then in January and February I was just writing, writing. That's all I do. So I can write reasonably quickly once I get going, but partly that is the fear of deadline and knowing the deadline's there. Yeah, but there's no like secret to it. I think you just sit down and you do it. Yeah, like, exactly. It's romantic, but I know a few authors I've had who do. You know, they have got full time jobs. Yep. Yeah, uh, but yep. if, even if it's like it's a pretty heavy part time job, the same amount after you feel just you know, one day a week is when they sit down. Yeah, and yeah. or yeah. they yeah take holiday. 
And it's actually funny. I was watching, who was I watching? It's that someone going on a date, I think, and the date dies and the auntie's help her get rid of it. Anyway, that awesome, was, awesome uh, book. was talking about yesterday something I really related to. And it was because I used to stick my writing in around a small business. And when my kids, when you have kids, yeah, when they're young at home, and that was really hard. So as soon as they, they were all at school and we solved the business, I thought, now I have all the time in the world, I'll be able to write more. And it doesn't actually necessarily work that way. Pretty much exactly the same as I did when yeah. it take a longer time to do it. Yeah. 12% of what she does is she always schedules something like lunchtime and afternoons pretty much every day, like so that she actually has to not waste. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is really, I think the most unproductive I ever was when I had a scholarship to a PhD scholarship and I had a whole year at one point where I didn't work at the same time. Yeah. So unproductive. Whereas the minute I added in kids and a part-time job and finishing the PhD, I could get it done. So I was, didn't, it's just busy people. That whole, yeah, ask if it's, yeah. But when they were young, I'd write up when they went to bed, like when they were I little. I don't know if I would do that now. I'm too tired now. I really. can't now. I think teenagers and older kids get psychologically more work. Yeah. Like you're more tired. They go to bed later for a start. Yeah. Or they go to bed after us. <laughs> holidays now but yeah like same with when they were little it was get them to bed as early as I could yeah yep and I'd sit down about eight o'clock and write some midnight <laughs> yeah that was about it yeah. but uh, so you carve out time what about how your actual what do you do to write a book do you do any planning do you dive right in yeah it looks like I write a book quickly so sometimes I can do it in just a few weeks I can write the whole draft but the pre-writing takes a long time you often have the concept like I often now will sell on a concept and yeah. I might write an outline so that's often done a long time before I actually write the book and then I have all that time of daydreaming and thinking and I usually have a notebook on the go per book and I just use it to write stuff down and probably do a lot of Googling of pictures. Like, I often haven't been to the places that said. So, this is set in Delaware. The family's from Delaware. I've never been there. So, I spent a lot of time like looking up the streets, Google Earth, like looking and what businesses are around. So, we're going to go get coffee. What is, which coffee shop would you go to? I love that stuff. Yeah. 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 And then, but I just picked, I picked somewhere a bit quiet, cold winters, somewhere that seemed like every manville. That it was not yeah. like fancy, so that when she goes to New York or Antarctica or other places, there's a contrast. Yeah. And actually, one of the, the best compliments I've ever had as a writer is I got an Instagram DM from a reader from Delaware. Yeah. Who was just like, oh, hi. So I wonder if we've met because I grew up around there and I go to the college that Jody goes to in the book. And she's like, and also my younger sibling had leukemia and, I, and was in that hospital and I was just like oh, I've never been to any of those places it's all just from online <laughs> like, that, that was such a nice compliment to and people. you went through that's good it also shows if you are writing a first book or you don't have a lot of money which most of us don't and you want to set a book somewhere you can do quite a lot of research I guess about I think most of it you can these days because I remember being really like going to I think I published one book, but I was still pretty early and I was a single mother of two very young kids, didn't have much money. And I went to a writing workshop and the writer said, if you're going to set a book somewhere, you must go there. It was set in Paris. You have to go to Paris. And I was just like, that's never happening. Does that mean everything I write has to be right here? Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> but then I don't know, but if I write a crazy Western, like if I'm writing, you may write, I can't go to 1883 Montana. It's true. But yeah. also it's always a slightly hyper-colored fantasy in yeah. these books anyway. It's not reality. Exactly. But that's a very good point, Re historical fiction. What was it? the second part of your question? Plotting a tent. What do you do once you sit down? I'm a real mix of both. Yeah. I don't think I ever plotted at all until I started selling on concept. Yeah. And then you have to write a pitch, right? Then you, can you send them like, I'm in the middle of pitching things right now, where I'll send them five ideas and be like, which one of these do you like? And they might be like, I like that one, but can you do a bit more of this? And so yeah. we workshop the idea. And then I usually have to write an outline. Yeah. Uh, but I think I, I can't be too much of a plotter because the characters, I think if I spend all my energy creating the characters right, it'll, it's all okay. Like they'll all, but I find the first third of the book takes me most of the time to write. I tend to rewrite the first three chapters over and over and over because I can't get it right. If you can get them complicated enough, you can get their problem. Big and interesting enough. So yeah, all their inner conflicts, if they're set up, or you get that first third done, the rest just writes itself. Yeah. In if you, yeah, if you let it. I loved your old characterization, particularly the second, obviously the main characters, but the secondary characters, like Cheryl, Tish, Kelly, and Grandma Gloria, is that the right name? Yeah. So do you do anything particularly to create them, or do they just come alive on the pages you write? They, I think they tend to come alive. Like, I think. I think it's worth doing a lot of daydreaming and pre-writing, like not sitting down. I teach a lot of postgrads and I think one of the major problems I see is when people write the book too quick. You know, yeah. they haven't done yeah. the thinking through and so they'll write a whole draft, but there's a lot of problems with that. And then that's a real pain to try yeah, and rework something that's that big. So I always say if you can really spend the time so I do a lot of daydreaming and those little characters pop up. And in fact, that's probably one of my problems is that the little characters tend to take over in all my books. They tend to like really jump out. And then the work for me is I've got to make the main character strong enough to stand up to or rise above the secondary characters. If you don't have to worry about the death, you can just do the rough and funny. Your, yeah, yeah. I know. In that way, you can have a lot of fun with secondary characters. Yeah. I think that advice, and I was actually going to ask you, what's your best advice for aspiring authors? And we can still go there, but I really think that thinking time is so undervalued. And as an author on contract, as well as being an aspiring author, sometimes you just want to get out there and you just want to. Yeah, in a real hurry. But I think there's a danger that there's a danger that us authors on contract as well have because you've got an end date in time. Yeah. And your instinct is to sit down and just start writing, right? And I find I get myself into psychological holes if I sit down too early. I completely agree. It just happened to me in my rural romance that I was just mentioned, I think, briefly beforehand because, yeah, it was a busy kind of year and I had yeah. to start and I had an idea, but it wasn't the characters. It was exactly what you said. Yeah. The idea was there, the characters were there, but they weren't deep enough. And so there was no real tension in the book. And I didn't realize this. Yeah. I just start. And the energy kind of goes, doesn't it? It just deflates. Yes, yes. Because I, I just was like, oh, this is, I'm not really excited about this anymore. And it's stalled. And then I realized why. And it's so exactly what you said. I feel like if I'd had a few more weeks, just being yeah. the story. It doesn't give you enough time to grow. It's like it's, I'm 
It's really hard to explain. It's got a bit like I've been making sourdough again lately. So it reminds me of the yeast. You have to give it the time to actually rise up. And if you make it, if you make the bread too quickly before it's risen, it just doesn't work. That's a really good analogy, I think. Oh, don't that help the cup. Let's put yeah, that one in. I like it. <laughs> um, where were we? So we, we, you do a bit of pre-thinking, then you spend a lot of time in the beginning. And this- then I binge. And then I'd binge like a nasty person, like where I just do nothing else. Like I don't cook, I don't clean, I don't, I get up all, I don't socialize, I don't, I just sit at the desk. So you write all day. chunks of your year and then you have times where you, you know, not writing crazy zone. Yeah. yeah. Although it's like always, there's always something happening. So there's usually edits, copy edits. So, you know, if you're doing more than one name or book, you're sometimes doing You've just finished your first draft and you might have structure edits for one book, copy edits for another book, publicity for another book, and it all just gets confusing. (laughs) Crazy. Let's just take a deep dive quickly into the name being there because obviously why probably. I'm guessing you chose Kessler Sue initially, you said, to be distinguish you from your sort of academic. Yeah, it was very different. They were just different readerships and you didn't want to. It would have been really confusing to read End of the Night Go and then pick up Bound to Eden. Like it just would have been so confusing. Amy Barry and and Nancy Matthews. So have you got any advice now in hindsight? Because I feel if I had a different name, Rachel was my Rachel John was a pseudonym, but Rachel's my real name. Then saying, and I would get confused. Like people call you Yeah. yeah. I think Tess because my parents call me Tess. Because <laughs> my middle name's Therese. And they used to call me Amy Therese or Tess. And so I would sometimes answer the test. So I was like, oh, that will work. But it still didn't really work. It didn't feel like me so much. I was happy enough with it. The one thing I didn't think through was how hard it was to say aloud. Tess Lasso is actually my grandmother's name. She was also Tess. Glamorous. Well, yeah, my agent at the time was just like, there was a pun on Lasso, which yeah, it is. Yeah, Tess Lasso. Yeah, but I hadn't thought of that. I was just like, oh, it's just my grandmother's name. But it's really hard to say aloud. The essence run together yeah, essence, yeah. <laughs> and people don't quite get how it's spelled or so I wouldn't do that again. It was too hard. But yeah. mass market paperbacks just have not done so well since Amazon and indie books rose. So Amy Barry was just moving into rom-com space. So they're basically historical rom-coms. So again, slightly different market. So yeah. I was like, I'll just have another name. So I retired the other one and well then, but being Amy is good, I don't answer to it. I do get a little confused sometimes about which book I'm talking about when they're yeah. all out at once. Because last year in the US, someone else's bucket list and marrying off Morgan McBride. So they're two different names. Yeah. But both books were out the same week. That's crazy. Insane. I know. Two different publishers. And then originally it was scheduled for... I think one was scheduled for June and one for August, but they both moved them up uh, to May. And I just, that week that it came out, I was just like, I am slipping between Instagrams, but also doing interviews and being like, now, which Amy am I now? <laughs> which one am I today? Wow. I, I'd say right now, are you writing critique? You're writing both? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Please. I really like it because I find the Amy T. Matthews books are a little bit more serious and they're harder to write for me, I think. Yeah, I find the rom-coms really fun and really quick to write. And like a reprieve, a brief break. Yeah, I really enjoy them. They're zesty. I enjoy the Amity Matthews books too, but they're, in terms of technique as well, they just take a little bit more thinking through and then they're a bit slower. I find that having written rural romance and then, yeah, let's say contemporary 
with Instagram. People often ask, do you like one better? And I always say, whichever one I'm not writing at the moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With 100% right. It's always greener. It's, oh, that's so much easier to write a romance. Do you think that's the reason you can be so prolific because you're switching because it's a refresher? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Because I do think, it, although they're similar, like they're in the yeah. same realm, it's not like writing sci-fi or something. And, yeah. But it gives you a little bit of a break. And I can relate to what you're saying about the Amy T. Matthews read being slightly more difficult. And I think, I don't know if this is not, it's for you, but although as I said, romance is not necessarily easy. Nothing's easy. It's all hard in its own way. But with romance novels, I know we don't like to use the word formula, but I've got a structure to follow. Yeah, it's a very tight structure. Yeah. So that helps. Certain things have to happen. Yeah. Whether it's in sort of general book clubbish type fiction, you might have one point of view, you might have four point of views. Yeah. 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 Each book is slightly different and I have to work out how that is going to be and although obviously all stories have do have an overarching kind of structure yeah it's not a set and so you have to really think through the beats and the energy and where the story is going in a way that with the romances I know they're gonna meet there's gonna be a lot of fun something's (laughs) gonna break them up they're gonna get back together and you instinctively like I don't plan it or think it through but I instinctively know as I'm writing it where that needs to happen you can just kind of feel, okay, this needs to happen now. Yeah, yeah, I get exactly what you mean with that. I have to ask a particular thing about this. So there is a scene almost straight out of When Harry Met Sally. Yes. When Elsa's whack at this, which is one of the funny parts that I mentioned earlier. So I'm guessing you're a fan of the movie. Yes, huge fan. What I want to ask is what about Harry Met Sally do you think it's made it such sort of a memorable classic? I mean, I think it's so well written. Like, yeah. It's just so beautifully written. And the fact that they're just so well motivated as characters. Like you get immediately who they are, what they're scared of, why they're great together, but also you totally understand why they're not getting together. And I think their conflicts, I love that their conflicts are everyday conflicts. Like they're not major dramas because I think that's true in regular dating life for 90% of us. That what causes our friction is the small stuff, not That's the big so stuff. true. Actually, I remember listening to Emily Henry on a podcast, I've got it written on my wall somewhere. She said, it's not how big the stakes are, it's how personal they are. And That's a great quote. You don't have to go like crazy with all that. You just need yeah. to explore why it matters to the actual characters. Yeah. I yeah. love her books. I yes. they're great. Very good. Masterclass reading her books. So now the real question though, Would you, have you ever visited the diner? Um, I have. And yeah, I have. orgasm there. I did not, but I did. I didn't even get to sit under the sign. I was off in the corner. That, that table is. You have to book it. And You're not allowed. To, I don't think you can book at Cats. As I don't think they take bookings. You have to stand in queue, and then you might look out. But it has got to be like round sign dangling over it, saying, "I'll have what she's having," and this is where it happens. You know, twice and Oh, it's so <laughs> worth going. The food is unbelievably good. They're like, it's like the family's been doing it for 180 years or something. And they ship all this pastrami all over the world, but it's amazing. Wow. It's huge though. They're like, the sandwich is so big. You know how you see in the movie her scooping bits out? Yeah, yeah. It's so big. So we yeah, would share the sandwich with someone. I, that's true. <laughs> a lot of stuff in America is big anyway. Yeah. Okay, there's one thing I'd like really like to explore or ask you about. So in this book, as we mentioned earlier, Bree, Jodie's sister, is an influencer. And as you said, a million followers. 
So writing and social media, we touched on it slightly earlier when you're talking about having to fit that in days rather than websites and stuff. That is a big part of our lives these days. Unfortunately, whether you're right or not, or unfortunately or fortunately, whatever you look at it. And so I wanted to know, yeah, how do you contend with your social media? How do you feel about social media as a writer? Do you have a process for I'm probably mostly on Instagram now. I like Instagram a lot. I probably don't post as much as I could, but you try and be a little bit authentic. And also, I don't want to spam people. There's a lot of book sales that you do on there. It's really hard promo time, isn't it? It is so hard. You feel like you're just going to bother everyone. I like stories for that, that it's just going to flick a pass. I really like Instagram. I find it really easy. It's really easy to toggle between two different two. And but yeah. I had a lot of postgraduate students who are like Generation Z because I'm an ex. Like, and I feel like I'm, you've got to own, you've got to own your own relationship to social media. Like, I don't want to be pretending that I'm young and I'm hip to the culture because I am not. Like, they know in a heartbeat when you try to be cool and I'm not a cool person anymore. I am not on BookTok. Like, I, I have an account just to watch things and see what happens. But I can ask my 23-year-old postgrad what's going on and they'll send me stuff they'll be like hey so this is a look at this book talk or look at what's happening here and so I feel really lucky that I've got access to people who are young and watching it but a lot of actually are and but it's really I think the thing to think about with it is it's just like word of mouth yeah like there are paid influences but really the stuff that gets traction I think is just really authentic word of mouth about books like when they pass on a book if it's Emily Henry or it's Colleen Hoover or it's fourth wing at the moment or whatever it is it's not mostly because what the it's never usually because of the author no it's got nothing to do with us it's really literally they love the book and are telling everyone to read it and then they all read it and then that keeps amplifying and but it's very different to word of mouth it's just very specific to a certain generation that's how they're doing it and yeah. so I don't feel like it's my place to weigh in as an old person beyond there. <laughs> I think some people of my age are on there and loving it and it's their natural habitat, but it's just not mine. No, I think whatever you feel comfortable with, if you're happy and you're enjoying it, give it a go. But yeah, I do struggle with social media. I like it. I sort of love-hate relationship. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, but I do think that we shouldn't worry too much about it. I think I saw Stephanie Lawrence talk at one of my very first Ramets Rise of Australia conferences. It was really early and she said that what we've got to remember is it's always about the story. Yeah. That whatever, like, I think it was when e-books were, like, booming and everyone was panicking and she was like, it's still a book, it's still a story yeah. and whatever incarnation the story takes, it's still a story that you're creating. And I think we've never been able to control word of mouth, really. Like, you can get in newspapers or you can get reviews or whatever, but... People pick it up or they don't and they recommend it to their friends or they don't. Exactly. I did it at your podcast last night, Writers on the Page, where I interviewed Devla McTiernan and I. And yeah, we were talking about this and at the, in the end, there's so much out of your control as an yeah. That panics us, doesn't it? And everyone, that seems to be a big panic people have is how do you do it? What's the secret? Good or bad, it's the way it is. We were talking yeah. about just that yeah, in all publishing houses. The way it is that some books are picked out to be that they push that, yeah, then you, there's a few that are here and then a few they basically push out. And, yeah, just like with films and TV. Yeah, because they've only got a limited amount of money. So yeah. like they, they have to put their budget somewhere and you could spread it across everyone. It'd be so thin no one would get lifted. I guess that's why social media has its appeal because it's like, 
something you can have a bit of control over and try. Yeah, absolutely. Did you do any research about influencing? Well, I haven't really, only a little bit of, yeah, talking to my postcodes and I'll go, I'll lurk and I'll have a look and read. Like I always go into bookshops and see what's on their recommended lists and what's on the bestselling lists. And I'll read the New York Times every week to see what's on the top bestselling list. Just to think, I think it's important as an author to know your genre, to know what people are reading in your genre and to respect that. You hear a lot of people I think it's probably a little bit out of insecurity or bewilderment about why certain things are selling. Like when dragons, dragons are the thing right now. And some people are like bewildered by it, but it's oh, it's interesting. That's a cultural moment. Something's happening there that people love dragons. I think the thing is, if you read that, it, the dragons are interesting, but it's yeah. A, what really in it is the sexual chemistry between Ursus page and dragon. Yeah. Yeah. Sexual chemistry seems to be driving a lot of things right now. That's behind Colleen Hoover. That's behind Hannah Grace. You know, like really intense sexual chemistry seems to be what people are going for right this minute. Yeah. So whether that's dragons or aliens or Western. Yeah, whatever it is. (laughs) That's right. I've got so many other questions that I wanted to ask you. Do you have any advice as a writing teacher, if anyone wants to do an academic study in writing or do a great PhD? Probably have a few bits. One is everyone's always in a real hurry, and I know I was as well, that you feel like the clock is, the clock is ticking and you're going to run out of time and just to take a breath and realise you're not going to run out of time. Like, just do the work. People want to skip the work and get to the publication yeah. and the publicity and all the kind of fun stuff, but actually the work is the job. Yeah. So I think to focus on craft a bit if you're an actor or a musician or whatever even if you're in sport if you're a soccer player like most of your life is training even when you're top of your game even if you're the best in the world at what you do most of your daily life is training and I think you want to concentrate on the training I think you read a lot and you stay up to date you stay up to date about everything about your industry so you go to conferences you make writing networks you listen to podcasts like this you read the trades if you can. I think also part of that is curiosity. I yep. think you often see a lot of insecurity in artists who, yeah, that's stupid or that's stupid. I'm not reading that. And I just find that myopia. You find it everywhere. You, you can go to a romance conference and people are like, literature sucks. Those people are awful. And you go to a literary festival and they're like, romance, who would read romance? Or people would do it to comic books or whatever. And my advice is to stay really curious and be open to all of it, read all of it and listen to everyone you meet because I just think that lack of curiosity is the death of good art. Yeah, I completely agree. That's great. Have you got a craft book that you read? Yeah, I've got lots. There's so many that I love. There's actually a really good book called Art and Fear, which I recommended in Romance Writers of Australia's newsletter. It's David Bales and Ted Orlands. And that book I always go back to because it goes through all the kind of psychological blocks that you have with writing. Yeah. And I find that helps me a lot. Be useful. Yeah. Because it is so much in your head and so mental. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. But before you go, let's so someone else's bucket list is out end of January. Yep. Be everywhere in February in the shops. So take a shelfie and post it. Your yeah. You're in tag Amy and read it. Yeah, um, and then you put another book out. Is it two more books? Yeah, this one would be like April. So Kim McBride will be out. I think it's April, and then Morgan McBride will be out sometime over the winter. So you can get both of them. So we've yeah. had you follow Amy 
Matthews. Yeah, on- Amy T. Matthews also on Insta and Amy Barry also on Instagram. They're probably the places I am the most. <laughs> Are you writing anything at the moment? Yeah, I just have finished up all the edits on Best, First and Last under Amy T. Matthews and that will be out July in the United States, December here in Australia. And that's a book about a grandmother, mother and daughter. They hike Machu Picchu because the grandmother's just been widowed, the mother's getting a divorce and the granddaughter can't decide if she likes this guy or not. If she doesn't know if she's commitment phobic or if he's full of red flags, she can't decide. So they go on a hike together and they kind of tell stories about their first loves and come to an understanding of their lives through that. Oh, it sounds fabulous. I cannot wait to read it. And we are actually doing it in the Rachel Jong Online Book Club. Next year. So thank you so much for your time. Good luck with your promo schedule. And yeah, please check out Amy's books and let her know and post them all over the meet over the social. Um, And yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. Hold up. 